passage we studied last week in John chapter 6, Jesus introduced the first of seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. He said in that statement, I am the bread of life. Title of the message today is I am the bread of life. Now the reason for going back and picking it up is because in the section of scripture we deal with today, that theme continues on but now with much more specific application. The phrase that I am the bread of life is meaning simply that I am the source of that which ultimately gives life, in this case, eternal life. But there's more to it than that, uh, a lot more. And he uses the familiar bread as it follows on the heels of his feeding of the multitude, where he multiplied the bread and fed thousands upon thousands of people, using only uh, a few loaves of bread that had been found in the uh, hands of a young boy. So with this in mind, bread becomes a focus of attention and one that we see repeated throughout Scripture. I'm reminded of the fact that several years ago, Kathy and I had a favorite restaurant that we went to on, I don't know, an occasion, regular occasion. The reason we liked it wasn't necessarily because of the entrees that were prepared, nor was it necessarily just the atmosphere or any of those things. While they were all good and they were all nice, it it wasn't that. It was that they would, as soon as you were seated, bring to your table bread Not just any, though. They would bring an entire round loaf of fresh baked bread and a dish of olive oil. We really liked that. And so we never said, you know, hey, let's go get this particular dish or let's go get that particular dish. We would say, you ready for some bread? And and there was no other explanation that was needed. We knew exactly which restaurant we were talking about. We knew exactly where we were going to go. Bread is not just something that is a feature of fond memories, but for those that Jesus spoke to, it was the very essence of life itself to sustain them. But we find that just as we reminisce fond memories of experiences, the only way that they have any meaning is if you've actually eaten the bread. Thinking about eating bread is not the same as eating it, is it? Understanding the ingredients or maybe the recipe that's necessary to make bread, that's not the same as eating it. Even knowing the scientific realities of how the body processes food in general, it's still not the same as eating it. Jesus used the metaphor of bread to refer to himself He equated eating the bread with believing that Jesus is God in the flesh and has come down from heaven to give eternal life to all who receive him, who take him in. But like the bread, thinking about Jesus is not the same as believing in him. Knowing facts and information about Jesus is not the same as believing in him. Even understanding how Jesus saves a person from their sins is not the same as believing. Jesus carries his metaphorical comparison further by claiming that he is the bread that comes down from heaven. And this causes the people to react negatively and to question his message. 
In this exchange is the very heart of the gospel itself. You see, either a person believes that Jesus has come from God and he alone is able to give eternal life or he doesn't. There's no middle ground with regard to faith in Christ. The belief to which Jesus is calling them is about a spiritual kingdom that will ensure eternal life with God rather than a temporal kingdom that will guarantee dominion over others. The means by which the victory of Christ's kingdom will be ushered in is even more startling as it unfolds. He will give himself as a sacrifice on the cross to eternally atone for sin so that all who believe in him can one day be raised up. The very notion of the cross, even as it is introduced through this metaphor, was considered offensive foolishness to the hearers. In fact, the cross remains an object of scorn to many still today. It forces us to see the depth of human depravity, to count the cost of our own personal sin, to realize the hopelessness of self-reliance, and to understand the futility of human effort. The cross brings us face to face with just how desperately we need Jesus. And yet, to many, it is folly. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To believe in Jesus, then, is to believe in who He is, what He has done on the cross, that He is now raised and is with the Father and will soon return so that we will be with him for eternity. To believe in him is to receive him into our lives at the same time forsaking all others, knowing that the hunger of the soul can only be satisfied with the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Three things. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 41, we see a grumbling rejection, a grumbling rejection. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The Jews grumbled like their ancestors in the wilderness. They think they know who Jesus is but view him only through the lens of their own limited perspective. They failed to recognize him as the Messiah sent from God, proving that Jesus knows their father far better than they know his. The interesting thing about this is that while it's easy for us in our particular historical context to look back on what they were doing and and think of them as short-sighted and misunderstanding, the reality is that this is the challenge in every generation to help the world to understand that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just another man. He's not just someone that is a founder of a religious movement, but he is God. He is incarnate. He has come down to offer his life a ransom for our sins and that it is through accepting him and receiving him into our own lives in a way that is all-encompassing 
that we experience the liberty and freedom that can only be known through salvation. They were grumbling because they were looking at Jesus from their own perspective and the limited view of their own understanding. Are you looking at him today for who he really is? Are you understanding him for all that he has done? Are you hearing him as he is calling you to himself? Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me and the other who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. The grumbling of the Jews was not only insulting, it was also dangerous. So long as a man remains and is content to remain confident in his own ability, without any divine help to understand his experience, he cannot come to Jesus and believe. As long as we are confident in ourselves, and rely only in our own understanding and experience, we cannot come to Jesus. The Bible says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The implication of this reminds us that salvation is entirely a work of God from beginning to conclusion. That everything that happens that ultimately brings us to faith is initiated by God himself, is carried out through the work of Christ, and that the only thing that you and I contribute to that other than the responsibility to believe is to actually believe. God does not serve our needs. We are privileged to be a part of his glory. Salvation is not just something that is owed, but rather it is an act of grace and it is a work of mercy. So that as Christ is declared to the generations and to the nations, we do so as an extension of the grace and mercy that we also have received, understanding that none of us would be where we are as Christians were it not for the work of God. Verse 45 says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how is it that God draws us to himself? The means of the drawing work or the calling of God is the word of God. The prophets foretold that God would teach them the truth. Ezekiel reminds us that we will have a new heart, a new mind. He tells us it will be one of flesh. Jeremiah echoes that as well. Over and over throughout the message that God's word delivered to the people through the ages is the reminder that he is the one who enables us to know the truth. John himself even says, knowing the truth is the means by which we are set free. I think a lot of times we look to other sorts of experiences. We want some sort of emotional experience or we want to have some sort of mental or intellectual understanding that is generated from within. And yet God is the one who provides the insight, the teaching, the illumination, all of which is implanted within the individual that ultimately turns our hearts to him so that all who receive his teaching ultimately come to Jesus. In verse 46, 
He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. As I read this verse, I wondered to myself, that seems odd and somewhat out of place. Uh, Everything that we've been reading up to this point doesn't go along with the idea of seeing the Father or seeing Him as a result of seeing the Son. And so I, I questioned about that, what does this mean, what is the intent of it? And yet when you step back from that just a moment, you'll see that it is perfectly compatible with everything else that has been said. So that when he says that that God is going to reveal himself and call people to himself through his word that is declared through the ages, then he says that that word is going to be the means by which we come to know. And then you remember that in John chapter 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And now you start to realize that there is a consistency to the message that John is sharing that draws us continually to him. And now it becomes even more profound as we realize that not only is Jesus the one by whom we come to know him, he's the only one so that he would say no one has seen the Father except the one who was sent from him. The exclusivity of the gospel becomes at the forefront of our understanding of the drawing and and the regenerating work that God is doing. Jesus is the exclusive mediator, mediator and revealer of God. And if you want to know God, that is only possible through knowing Jesus. Verses 47 and 48, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. With a strong affirmation that whoever believes has eternal life is an implied invitation to believe in Christ and be saved. Once again, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life as though he is holding out the offer of eternal life. As though he is inviting us to partake of this meal that ultimately is the internalization of the truth that we claim. There is no way for us to simply know Christ through the mind or to know Christ through the experience or the emotion. We must know Him through everything that we are so that we love Him with our might, our strength, our mind, our whole being. In so doing, we experience that which He alone is able to provide. Surely there was some confusion, and that is reflected in some of the things said in the text. And so what we see is that Jesus offers a growing explanation. In verse 49, he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He makes a comparison. The contrast between the Old Testament manna and Jesus, the bread from heaven, has already been introduced in verses 30 through 33. But now one further aspect of that contrast is developed. The manna in the wilderness, though it was heaven sent and certainly able to sustain natural life, could not bestow eternal life. The proof is irrefutable. How do we know that it couldn't sustain eternal life? The fathers died. 
But by contrast, Jesus is the bread come down from heaven, such that if anyone eats of this bread, eternal life is assured and we never die. When he looked at this, he is trying to help them and us to understand the distinction between the things that are so much a part of our physical experience and our daily encounter and to realize that there is a world completely above and beyond all of that. And what Jesus is calling us to is an understanding so that the spiritual experience of salvation and regeneration in which we take Christ into our lives as the bread of life, that spiritual experience is intended to inform everything else, not the other way around. Think about how many times Christians have allowed the physical realities of life to inform their spiritual decisions and directions. Everything from our own personal preferences to our own traditional experiences to our own expectations or needs perceived real or otherwise. All of these things many times become the focal point of our experience so that then through those events or needs or drives or urges or, or familiarity, whatever it may be, through those things then we project what Christ is to be and what our faith is to look like. It's the exact opposite of how it's supposed to work. What Jesus is trying to help them to understand is that these things are too limited they can serve as analogies or metaphors, or they can serve as illustrations, but ultimately they have no meaning in and of themselves. It is the understanding of Christ as the only hope of salvation that gives meaning, but it's more than that. It now informs every other relationship and experience in life. Verse 51 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The first two sentences repeat basically the crux of the previous two verses. But the third sentence, it introduces something that has even greater meaning to the word bread. When Jesus declares, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Many people see this verse and assume that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And while there is information contained in this passage that would help to understand better some of the meaning of the Lord's Supper, this is not at all about the Lord's Supper. What we know is that John does not include a Lord's Supper discourse. In fact, no reference to it appears in the Gospel of John at all. But rather what John does mention here is the word flesh. He says, as Jesus recorded, that my body, my flesh, is the bread that is going to give life. What he's doing is he's reminding us of the reality of sacrifice. Now, how do we know that this isn't about the Lord's Supper? Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper in the upper room experience where it is initiated. Paul repeats it as Jesus gave him that instruction because he says that what I received from the Lord I passed on to you is of first importance. And so we have 
these various accounts of the Lord's Supper, in every single one of them, Jesus says, my body. He never says, my flesh. He always says, my body, given for you. Is the meaning different? It is different. It's very different. Here, he says, my flesh. Well, why would he say that? Well, again, we go back to the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. There's a connection. What he's talking about here is the incarnation. What he's talking about here is the sacrifice that will be necessary. What he's talking about is what John the Baptist would later refer to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The word flesh directs us back to chapter 1 where we see that the flesh dwelled among us. This is a reference to the incarnation and the purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh was so that he could give himself as a sacrifice for sin in the atonement on the cross. So the clause in this last sentence is sacrificial. <coughs> Excuse me. It reminds us of what we it reminds us of the reflection that is seen in the numerous references that John makes to the Passover and the Passover lamb. With this in mind then, this gives information that's necessary because without it, you're going to have a tough time dealing with what comes next. In it, we see a gracious illustration. Look at verse 52, a gracious illustration. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Jews become incensed as they take the words of Jesus literally. Anyone with common knowledge or common sense can see that he is not advocating some sort of morbid form of cannibalism. He is figuratively refining the true nature of genuine faith. What Jesus is doing is in the process of separating surface followers from true believers. This goes against everything that we generally associate with faith and religion. Especially when you put it in the context of our current culture. If you want to reach people for Christ, the best way to do it is to not offend them. The best way to do it is to welcome them. The best way to do it is to encourage them. Now, all of that is true, and I don't dispute any of it. Anybody who claims to be a Christian goes out of their way to offend those who aren't is missing the whole point. But the reality is that regardless of how inviting or how welcoming or how warm we may make an environment or a presentation or a relationship, the reality is that salvation always comes down to receiving the gift of Christ and recognizing that that gift is more than just an endorsement that makes you a member of a particular club. It is taking into yourself the reality that Jesus literally died. His body was destroyed and his blood was spilled. 
in order to atone for my sin. This is what he's talking about here. And this is why they are offended. The gospel is always going to carry with it a level of challenge that for those who believe there will be a a joyful acceptance and liberty found in the truth. And for those who do not, there will always be a sense of condemnation and judgment that falls because the weight of sin remains. The condemnation that is present already but now highlighted by the reality of the call to salvation becomes an offense to people who do not want to believe. It's what creates that discomfort until we yield to the truth. It's what causes that stirring in the life. It's what sparks so many conversations that are at once controversial and conflicted. And the reason is because Jesus cannot be disseminated nor dissected on the terms of human understanding. He can only be received as we stand at the foot of the cross and realize that he died for me. The Jews are very uh, upset about this, but in verse 53... Jesus responds and says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus repeats the principle of the previous verse, but now in very specific terms that are graphic and violent. In each of verses 53 and 54, we are reminded of the reality of his call. The addition of the conditional clause, unless, unless you receive that and unless you eat and drink, unless demonstrates that there's no other way to eternal life other than through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He even adds the title, Son of Man, which he uses throughout John's Gospel to show that he is the one who has come down from the Father and has the power of life everlasting in himself. Back in verse 40, Jesus says the same thing. In fact, the phrasing is almost identical with one exception. Instead of eating and drinking, he says, whoever comes and believes. Eating and drinking then but clearly synonyms of believing. The image of his flesh and blood speak clearly to the sacrifice he made at the cross to redeem people from sin. What is truly scandalous is not the cannibalistic metaphor, but the cross to which it points. Other foods had certain value, there's no doubt. In verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. While the value of physical food is obvious, Jesus says that he is the true food and the true drink. Regular fare cannot provide eternal life. It can only sustain life temporarily. To provide, they provide eternal life. That Jesus offers us that which provides eternal life so that the one who believes in him 
will remain in Christ, but also Christ will remain in him. The very nature of the concept of remain is prominent in John's gospel, and it is covenantal. He is describing a covenant relationship in which the realities and results are guaranteed by the work of Christ. And the only contribution we make to that, again, is receiving that gift and acting in faith. He says that these are the means of life and there are no other. Verse 57 says, As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Life in the Father. And he sent Jesus to give life to all who believe. Whoever receives Jesus, he says, will also live and experience this life. This is an immediate spiritual regeneration that happens now, as well as the promise of a future hope. When Jesus returns. In verse 58, it says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Matt Carter wrote a commentary that I've been using all along in our study, but he, I want to I wanna read a quote. And he actually quotes somebody else, but so it's both him and another. In his book, he said, Augustine famously said, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Carter says, I want to keep the spirit of his statement, but tweak the words a bit. If he was reading this passage, he might say, you made us to hunger for you. And our starving souls find no nourishment until they feast on you. Only Jesus can fill the emptiness inside. Only Jesus can quiet the hunger of the soul. Because only Jesus can give life. I regret that this is a passage that we couldn't spend all morning with. The depth that is contained herein is beyond what my feeble words can adequately convey. But if you can look beyond the almost frenetic way that I have moved through this passage... And for a moment, contemplate the basic reality and the fundamental truth. That Jesus has called us to an experience of faith that is more than mere acknowledgement. It's more than social identity. It is a moment in which we realize that what he has done by offering himself a sacrifice on the cross is something that we must receive into ourselves. You need to think about your sin. You need to repent and heed his call. And if that stirs in you a desire for deliverance rather than debate, then God is calling you to himself. Don't put it off. Don't resist it. Receive it. 
and live.